0: Hello everyone and welcome to Mistresses of Murder. I am Cindy and I am Cheyenne and we are here to tell you the tragic story of the manhole murders. Um, It's an Indiana story with me. A lot of times it is an Indiana story but I'm a lot older than Cheyenne and I remember a lot of these and I didn't know all the details so I have to dig in and figure it all out. Um, I have some great writers and researchers so this one really is just awful. I have a child who lives up north in northern Indiana further north than me and I am in northern Indiana which by the way I want to point out that it took me so long to get here because there was a football game at Purdue and it pissed me off because they had all the traffic jacked up (laughs) but it's good that the state police had something to do Mm -hmm. anyways (laughs) So, this is the manhole murders. In January of 2007, one missing persons report led to the discovery of multiple murders when police found the bodies of four adult men inside manholes. I just can't even imagine. Um... Beneath the city of South Bend, Indiana. Now this is where Notre Dame College is. A chilling case that revealed gruesome crime, a tragic motive, and an urgent need for social change. You're listening to us, the mistresses of murder. And this is the manhole murders. The first sign of trouble came when Michael Shan Nolan, he went by Shan, failed to turn up at his family's Christmas festivities. About a week before Christmas, Shan had spoken to his mother on the phone. Shan planned to stay with his parents, Mike and Darlene, over the weekend, then traveled together with his to his sister Amy's house for their annual Christmas Eve party. Shan loved visiting with family and playing with his three young nephews. He did not own a cell phone and was not always easy to reach, but it was unlike him to miss the holiday. So when Christmas Eve rolled around and no one had heard from him, Darlene, his mother, was worried. After a worried visit with the rest of the family, Darlene left the Christmas party to look for Shan where he was living, an abandoned warehouse occupied by a group of homeless men to whom it was known as the Fort. (sighs) Darlene's 44-year-old son Shan, 40-year-old son Shan, had been living in part of the city's homeless community for several years. At that point, he had dropped out of high school due to challenges of learning disabilities and was not properly diagnosed at the time. And had struggled in the years to hold down traditional jobs. Over time, Shan developed a substantial alcohol addiction. And before people get really judgy, I have a homeless relative, and it's not easy. And I have an alcoholic relative, same relative. And it's, it's hard, and he, they're just trying to navigate a relationship with their son where he's at. And sometimes that's the best you can do. Yeah. So it compromised his ability to keep working because he was an alcoholic. His substance abuse made him even more ineligible for some types of supportive housing. So after several failed attempts to recovery, in recovery, Shan settled to a life at the fort. After a period of turmoil, it seemed that Shan had finally found some contentment in his way of life. He shared with his parents that he felt he had finally found a degree of belonging among the other men at the fort. He found enough work scrapping metals and doing other side hustles to get by and was able to access community support programs to supplement as needed. So that's like food stamps. That's good. Um, and, you know, I'm not one to judge. And mm-hmm. every life has value, and everybody has a mom and dad. So, mm-hmm. I like to tell these stories because I think we forget that. because yeah, being homeless shouldn't be like a death sentence. Nope, um, or that you don't matter. Yeah. Beyond that, he maintained positive relationships with his family. Darlene later said in an interview that while Shan's lifestyle was not glamorous... He had found a way, and the family had still loved him, and wanted to stay as connected as possible, as you would. I speak from a place of authority. So, it was on that December 24th, Darlene and Nolan, Darlene Nolan drove her car to the fort, stood outside the building, and called for her son. There was no response, but she did not go inside. It's obviously a dangerous area. They don't let the homeless live in the nice neighborhoods. The fort had no electricity. It was dark, cold, cluttered space inhabited by a rough crowd, and Darlene was too scared to enter on her own. No shit. disheartening. she made her way back to the car. The following morning, Christmas Day, Shan's mom and dad both went to the police station to file a missing persons report. And on the next day again the next day an officer was assigned to the case because you know christmas yeah. and homeless just saying <laughs> meanwhile the nolans were searching as well calling hospitals searching shelters libraries and other locations that shad shan frequented the drop they dropped by our lady of the road to hand out photos and talk to people they met on the street what they discovered was that no one had physically seen Shan since Monday December 18th and that he visited the local blood plasma donation office and that is what a lot of people do they donate plasma yeah. for money not just homeless people it's not bad money. <laughs> no, that was one day before Shan spoke to Darlene on the phone to make holiday plans at this point Shan's father decided to go to the fort but he too was intimidated to go in alone and asked for a police escort now this one kind of pissed me off because Shan's 40 so he's Parents are at least sixty. Yeah. My age, at least late fifties, yeah. early sixties. Um, but the, and the police comply with the request and send an officer along with him. However, the officer doesn't enter the building. What's the whole point. He Remember, there was no warrant at this point. No sign play. Right. That's what I'm saying. It, I wouldn't know why that'd still be an issue. You well, know. He's not asking you to go in and And it's not a anymore. private residence. Yeah. So, he just wanted you to go and make sure everything was safe. Right. <laughs> the residents in the building squat illegally and are likely wary of the police. It's unclear whether the officer was permitted to enter the building without probable cause, but in any case, he waited outside as Mike Nolan entered the building so to search. To scream at the top of his lungs if something's going wrong. Oh, <laughs> if you <if> hear <laughs> hearing. The space inside is, well, searching with only a small flashlight. Mike was able to identify the space where Shan had been sleeping. All of his things were there, his makeshift bed, some clothes and magazines, but there was no sign of his son. There was evidence that other people staying in the building. In fact, there was a total of three beds in the area where Shan's belongings were found. There were other structures that had been built, makeshift bedrooms and hideaways for people's possessions. However, Mike could not find one single occupant in the building that day later he returned to post signs share photos and leave a note for shan so just in case he returned he would know his family was searching for him and that to me was just really sad yeah because i kind of feel like and i'm not trying to make a big deal out of it but if your people are not at the top of people they're not really going to bust their ass and notre dame is a rich south bend it shouldn't be that way you know what i mean With no leads, the investigation was beginning to stall out, but the Nolans continued searching. They began to hear frightening rumors. Other men from the fort were also missing, three in total, including Shan and the friend he had invited for Christmas, Mike Lawson. People began to speculate about whether or not the disappearances were related. Three homeless men vanished from the same building during the same week was enough to cause panic. For some, but was shrugged off by others. All the rich because people, all the police officers, yeah. Yeah, this is what it happens, yeah. The homeless population can be highly trans- transient. And the men could be together or separate, alive or dead. And there was no evidence to back up any theory. And that's what police officers and other people tell themselves because... It makes it sound better, but my people homeless, homeless wouldn't people. leave the area if they're from that area. Yeah. I We had a homeless guy in our nursing home that was homeless on the streets for 14 years. He never left Lafayette. Yeah. And they don't, they don't have a lot of stuff. And they don't get on big all buses. All and, right. As talk of the missing men circulated, another commonality surfaced. All three men had earned their living through scrapping. Scrapping involves salvaging scrap metal like lead, aluminum, and copper, which is in high demand due to the high metal prices at the time. Many businesses were willing to buy these materials. Scrapping is dangerous work, such as pulling scrap metal from the walls of abandoned buildings and even stripping metal from the cables and wires underground. The underground work was particularly hazardous as it involved entering manholes and carefully removing metal from wires no longer in use without damaging live wires. See, I didn't even know about that. That's just crazy. The job of scrapping underground was not for the faint of heart, as it involved working in the dark and potentially perilous conditions. Perhaps there had been an accident. Perhaps Inquiries led the local business owner named Don, who had experience with railroad work, who had authorization from the city to engage in this type of scrapping. Sometimes he worked alone, but often he hired homeless men to assist him. Don had recently hired a resident at the fort, a man named Randy Reeder. But the partnership didn't last long because of Randy's volatile personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don replaced Randy with another resident at the fort, Mike Lawson. The friend who was supposed to be at Christmas dinner with Shannon and his family. I was a powder. yep nine weeks after shannon the other man went missing the police finally decided to investigate the railroad tracks near the fort and inspect some of the manholes Mm. a few officers arrived at the location where approximately 50 manholes were located on both sides of the train tracks spaced about 200 feet apart opening these manhole covers was a substantial task so it's got to be different than the ones like we see yeah Requiring them to be pried open and slid aside. Manhole covers can weigh the average of 250 pounds mm, heavy. <laughs> and are generally opened using a tool known as a manhole key. However, they can you can use crowbars, crowbars, and screwdrivers if you had to in a pinch. Upon opening the very first manhole, they paired inside and made a shocking discovery. Two bodies were face down, ten feet below the surface. It was immediately apparent that it was not a scrapping accident. Neither of the men were wearing shoes, even though they had disappeared in late December in South Bend, which is way up north and freezing cold, yes. (laughs) Even for me, you know, and I don't wear shoes anywhere. So, yeah, but perhaps most importantly, there was bruising on one of the men's bodies. On one of the men's bodies, yes. Post-mortem bruising indicates lividity, a term used for how blood pools in the lowest part of the body after death. Though the man nearest the entrance of the manhole was lying face down, his lividity pattern suggested that he had died laying on his side, indicating that the body had been moved after death. So he had been picked up after he was dead. I'm pleased to While the police suspected that they had likely found two of the three missing men, they had not yet confirmed the identities. The bodies had been retrieved from the manhole, which was a complex operation to perform safely without disturbing potential evidence. Yeah, I would think. Complicating things further, one of the bodies was draped over a live wire, and at the surface, a crowd was there, including Shan's parents. Ooh. Upon extraction, investigators noticed the advanced state of decomposition due to the relatively warmer temperature underground compared to the surface in January. What stood out even more were both of the bodies had suffered severe beatings. See, that's gross. Even in that condition, Mike and Darlene were able to identify their son. Mm -hmm. One of the two men was Shan. The missing person's Mm -hmm. case had officially became a homicide case. But the search for answers was far from over. The next step was to return to the fort. For the first time, police entered the building. Oh, they can enter now. Yeah, That's good. The fort, which was previously housed as a chemical company, had been abandoned for some time. The investigators entered the building. They encountered a chaotic scene, which abandoned... With abandoned office supplies, documents, and tools left behind. The building was in serious disrepair, disrepair, with holes in the walls, broken windows, and a leaky roof. Moreover, the living conditions of the individuals who frequented the building were deplorable, with makeshift toilets and piles of waste everywhere. What do you expect? It's a homeless camp. You don't want them on the street. They don't have the money to build a bathroom. Right. (laughs) In their search, investigators discovered a small alcove between the first and second floors where they found three beds. This space belonged to Shan and Mike Lawson. Investigators equipped with bright light and years of training found dark spots on the wall next to Shan's bed that his father had overlooked, because he was there with a little flashlight in the dark, because the cops wouldn't come in, yeah. just saying. Yeah. And when <laughs> they removed the bedding, they found more blood. Investigators continued the search, encountering more blood stains on the walls as they moved deeper in the building. They also discovered bloody boot print that perfectly stamped into a manila envelope, which was still lying on the floor, over two months later. They collected the boot print and other evidence from the site. The autopsies were expected to shed light on the manner of death, which is probably being beat to death, but what do I know? (laughs) However, many disturbing aspects of Shan and Mike's death had already came to light during the investigation. Both Shan and Mike had suffered severe skull fractures and injuries to their heads, chests, and shoulders like a beating (laughs) they had defensive wounds on their arms some of the injuries were small and round while others were longer and narrower suggesting that they may have been inflicted with a hammer or club like weapon they had clearly been a brutal attack but why after the bodies were discovered police began actively interviewing residents of the fort as well as other homeless individuals staff and volunteers in the nearby soup kitchens However, many people were reluctant to cooperate with authorities, resulting in few leads. Unexpected, unexpectedly, Don, the local scrapper we mentioned before, contacted the police, claiming to have worked with the three missing men, mm-hmm. and Mike, whose bodies were found, and Brian Talbot, who was still missing. Don offered to assist the investigators for mm-hmm. searching the other manholes. They so you got one fucking decent them. human being. Oh, was decent. Uh, either I'm that or afraid. he's trying to put himself in his <laughs> investigation, right? That's what you were thinking. <laughs> During the search, they encountered an upside-down manhole cover that drew their attention, and upon entering, they discovered two more bodies. uh One of the bodies was later identified as Brian based on his clothing, but the identity of the other man remained unknown until the autopsy. The fourth man was Jason Coates, a 29-year-old who had also been living at the fort. So there was more missing than people even knew about. Yep, the discovery of four deceased men without any suspects raised concern, and there might have been... And there was a lot of concern about a serial killer targeting homeless individuals. Police brought Don in for questioning, like Cheyenne said, because that made her nervous. <laughs> the fact that he was familiar with both the victims, the manholes made him suspicious, and serial killers have been known to meddle in investigation. There you go. <laughs> I watched No the Mind. However, after Don agreed and passed the polygraph, police dismissed him as a suspect. Investigation in the town along the railway found no similar cases. After pursuing several dead-end leads, Police turned their attention to Randy Reader, the man whose name kept popping up in connections with the fort, the guy that he had to fire for being mean. Mm-hmm. However, when the police questioned Randy, they found him cooperative and seemingly truthful, but Randy did not steer them toward another man, or he did steer them towards another man, Daniel Short, who he said had been staying at the fort recently when the police tracked down daniel his eccentric behavior made the police curious and they questioned him about the recent stays at the fort but claimed not to but he claimed not to have been there at the time when he was asked about his current accommodations daniel mentioned that he avoids camping in the woods near the winter during the winter because he hates getting snow on his boots boots Mm, and snow, it's South Bend. You're getting <laughs> snow anyway. And surprisingly, he complied. They asked to see his boots. Uh-oh. It was an exact match, right down to the wear patterns. They did. When the police confronted him with the evidence, Daniel Short confessed. Along with Randy Reeder, Uh Daniel Short, along with Randy Reeder, had constructed a hideout within the abandoned building known as the Fort where they lived. One day they discovered that some of their belongings, including a critical propane heater, had been stolen by four homeless men. Shan, Brian, and Mike, and Jason. Randy and Daniel could hear the heat running in the alcove, the four men drinking and laughing with each other late in the night, while Randy and Daniel sat listening. Chilled and seething. In a horrific act of premeditated violence, the two men waited until Jason and Brian left the building for breakfast the following morning. Then attacked Shannon, and Mike Lawson in their beds. Randy wielded a hammer, Daniel the length of a pipe. Huh? That matches. <laughs> then they hid near the entrance of the building, waiting nearly two hours to ambush Jason and Brian. After killing the second two men, they heard moaning coming from the alcove. Shan was still alive. Randy returned to the room and while Shan begged for his life, they dealt him another final blow. Days after the murders, Daniel and Randy moved the victims' bodies to nearby manholes. They waited until after dark to carry out the gruesome task, which let went unnoticed. There were many near misses the night Shan's mom first came to the fort and called for her son not aware of the horrifying offense of folding within. Yeah. So they were killing him, not knowing at that point his body was still inside. And yet, it, it was the proactive search of one family that led to the other three murders being uncovered. Two. What well, if their family cared... Who knows? Daniel pled guilty and was sentenced to 65 years in prison, while Randy went on trial and received 260 years. Despite the gruesome nature of the crime, the extensive coverage by journalist Virginia Black, the case received surprisingly little attention in the media outside South Bend. I never heard about it. (laughs) That goes back to them being homeless, and people go, "Well, I don't know. They were homeless. It's like prostitutes. Like a prostitute, can you really rape them? Yeah, bitch, you You can can. rape them. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and you can murder them. They're not lesser people." Yeah. Ten years later, Virginia Black of the South Bend Tribune followed up with the Nolans. The fort had been torn down. Homelessness persists in South Bend and countless other cities in the United States. As of 2017, the Nolan family reported that they still visit the site near the fort's old location, each year in remembrance of their son. The families of the other three victims declined to speak on the case. However, the story had been referenced by advocates of homeless communities across the United States to point out a need and the vulnerability of the homeless community to support whether amnesty programs to increase protections for homeless individuals and to decrease the stigma that keeps us quiet and separated amongst the struggle and the suffering. It's sad that they were killed, obviously. I... I thought this was going to go a different way. I thought it was going to be, like, someone killing them because they were homeless and they don't right. like that. No, so just two crazy that that guys. <laughs> and they said they stole the propane heater, but it's a it's a communal thing, so did they know that they were really stealing it or did somebody yeah. they think somebody left it? They saw it and was like, Oh wow, we could really use that. And the references <laughs> the only references I had were mostly the South Bend Tribune. The Goshen used in the New York Times did a little bit, Los Angeles Times and The Guardian, but most of the references were the the woman Virginia Black from the South Bend Tribune. I just think sometimes they forget that Homeless people are still people, and we like to say, "Well, it, it could happen to them, yeah. but it wouldn't happen to me." But it would. But even but. if it, even if it wouldn't, though, and and I get that. But even if it wouldn't, you they don't have people. Yeah. No, nobody cares about them. They're still human beings. I have such an issue with that. It just goes right through me. But anyway, so a story you wouldn't have heard much about: the South Bend manhole murders, 2017, not that terribly long ago. Mm. And if you've ever been to South Bend, you would never believe that there's a part of that place like that. I've been up there. Notre Dame is something. And the Catholic Church is big up there because of Notre Dame. Here's a thought. Why don't you fix some fucking problems? But what do I know? Anyways. I'll get off my soapbox, and that is the story. And I'm going to ask you again to rate and review. To please visit our website at www.mistressesmurder.com. Hang with us. Email us at Midwest Mistresses of Murder at gmail.com. Um, be our friends. Go to buy us a call, buy me a coffee, backslash mistress Cindy, and buy us some coffee. I'm not asking for a monthly donation. We're not there yet. We understand that. But hey, Chip in, buy us a coffee, grow with us, come and grow with us. And until the next time, Cheyenne, we'll catch you on the flip side.